Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Yes, hello everybody, it's Dr Nick here again. Welcome to Radiotherapy Live online and on podcast. I look forward to having your company here on 3RRR 102.7 on this absolutely gorgeous autumnal Melbourne morning. Oh, and while misdiagnosis is spawning around Europe, having, by all accounts, a well-deserved break and a magnificent time, I'm very fortunate to be joined in the studio this morning by two of our regular panellists. Uh, we've got the sociologist, academic, master of the radio, knobs and buttons, panel beater. You've been looking after Marinara as well. You've been here since the crack of dawn. Yeah, they, um, they've been hit by the plague, uh, so uh, I stepped up to the plate and pressed a couple of buttons for them. It's one of those things, isn't it? I was reading that article in The Age about one of the understudies for Hamilton who said he's had to play just about <laughs> yeah. every part and sometimes halfway through the show because of COVID striking everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well done. That's a fantastic job. And also with us, we've got scientist, psychotherapist, Prudence Dear. How are you, Prudence? Yeah, welcome. Good, welcome to the studio. And panel beater, good morning. Good so morning. I can hear myself now. No. <laughs> and Prudence Speak. Speaking into a black hole there. It sounds like we're speaking from Ballarat. Where you live. Well, nice yeah, it's a bit foggy out there this morning, but it's much nicer here. It must be beautiful driving in, though. Is the sun in your face all the way in? Well, it wasn't this morning, so no, that was okay. all right. Yeah. Uh, you've, got a, you've got a very special guest for us this morning, haven't you? I have, actually. Yes, yes. We've got um, Anna Bernasocki is going to go join us. She's um, the uh, manager of suicide prevention at Switchboard Victoria. And we are going to have a little bit of... So there's probably a bit of a content warning, trigger warning here. We're going to use the word suicide a few times. But Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be quite a positive sort of uh, segment. We're going to talk about um, support for those bereaved by suicide. Excellent. Looking forward to that that very much. You'll be coming up later on in the show. And um, a sudden unexpected death of not one but two 52-year-olds, both Shane Ward and Kimberly Kitching, has thrown the spotlight on health checking, in particular heart health. So our other guest this morning is cardiologist Peter Kissler. And he'll be here to tell you everything you need to know about your heart, how to look after it, what checks you might or, or might not need. <laughs> and for the coffee addicts out there, he's also just published a huge study about coffee and your heart. And I think the results might surprise you. So keep Dear, I just had a coffee, so I hope that's good news. <laughs> well, you'll have to stay listening for it. <laughs> but before that, it's... Tell us, tell us, panel beta, that was a... That was a Labrador Retriever today. Oh, yes, a Labrador And that's our dog part shout out <laughs> here at Triple R. We love all animals, cats, dogs, aardvarks and axolotls, but you don't see too many of them in the park. So dogs, it is Prudence Deer. Who's yes. your shout out? Ah, oh, right. Yes. Well, I wasn't in a park so much as in Collingwood yesterday. A bit of poetic licence, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, look, and I met Louise. And Louise is a... Um, uh, she's a foster person. For for dogs, oh. and that's just wonderful. So I met her and a really lovely 
12-year-old Jack Russell Cross called Casper, and he's so sweet, and it was really nice, and he had a bit of a play with my dog. And, um, yeah, look, uh, Louise um, is a volunteer for Starting Over Dog Rescue, a great organisation, and just obviously people who volunteer for that are just so lovely. So I said, Louise, listen in, because she said she wasn't a triple R listener, and I said, oh, well, right, 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, check it in, we're going to give you a shout-out. There well, you go, Louise and Casper. Well, hopefully Louise is listening along with, I hope. With, with Casper, I think so, yes. yes and hopefully, you know, we're going to find Casper a lovely home. And also, I hope it's listening is Dana from Richmond with the absolutely beautiful Kelpie Cooley Cross. I've not come What's across that? Cooleys before, but Cooley is another kind of working dog. So huh? it's a bit, bit like, bit like uh, the special case. I thought it was some sort of dessert. <laughs> anyway, da- Dana had this beautiful two-year-old Kelpie Cooley Cross called Daisy. We met in Richmond, so shout out to Louise and Dana. And we'll be coming up with more in just a second. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Panel BT, you've got a bit of news for us today, haven't you? Yeah. Uh, last uh, week, um, the McKinsey Health Institute released a report, as they uh, want to do, um, and a couple of things caught my attention and actually keen to hear your impressions, uh, Dr Nick and uh, Prudence. Um, this one, The headline out of this report was that, uh, yes, we, we know we're living longer and all that's well and good, but the proportion of our life... Um, in not such good health hasn't changed for a long, long time. So just a a quick figure for us. So in 1960, life expectancy, we're talking uh, here in the quote-unquote developed world. Um, In 1960, um, we were looking at a 54 years of age average life expectancy. And in 2019, that rose to 73. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty impressive. But using those same dates... 1960 and 2019, um, by the measurements that the uh, uh, McKinsey Health uh, Institute applied, we're still living about 50% of our life in poor or moderate health. Whoa, so what what does that actually mean? How are you measuring poor and moderate health? Yeah, so um, digging deeper into the the report, which... um, uh, for those of you insomniacs out there, it's about 100 and something pages long, but jump in... Um, it was things like um, medication, um, um, uh, visits to the doctor, um, mm-hmm. and, and these sorts of things, and, there, and of course, the aging, the aging diseases. Dare we call them that? Um, you know, things like arthritis, osteoporosis, um, uh, eyesight, um, dental, um, backs and hips and knees, um, all of that. So they're saying that we're, in some sense, not doing that well because yeah. we're really, we might be keeping people alive longer. I think you said from 54 up to 72, so a huge change in life expectancy. Mm. Uh, not much fun living longer if it's well, going to be not great health. What do we expect, though? I mean, again, we're, this is sort of so anti-aging, isn't it? What, what happened to the fact that we do, as we, get, as we age, our bodies kind of slow down to some degree, but we seem to expect everything to keep working absolutely perfectly right up to the last moment? I think that the issue that they're putting, um, pointing to is not, not anti-ageing so much as it is um, a lifestyle 
right? Mm. Um, and, you know, so the, the social and political determinants of health, right? So it just goes back to that, that um, centering of that issue. So on the one hand, there's the ageing diseases of the wealthy, you know, um, which is, you know, eating too much, drinking too much, um, uh, work stress, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then there's the ill health of the, uh, quote unquote again, uh, underprivileged people who are doing it tough, um, where the sorts of health issues that they deal with are pretty significant. So it's, it's, not, it's not anti-aging, I wouldn't have thought. I think it's more socioeconomic. Yeah. And, when and it does emphasise the inequity then perhaps between... Social demographics. Oh, yeah. big time. Yeah, yeah. So they they tried to be a bit optimistic about it and s- s- sort of wanted to treat it as a, a, as a learning moment um, coming out of uh, COVID and wanted to promote a return to a traditional definition of health. So um, for the GP in the room, in the studio, what's your definition of good health? Uh, so this is one that we go through with the medical students. Yeah. And it's so long ago, I can't actually remember what we tell them. <laughs> <laughs> do you want me to tell you what these guys are going to? It's, and it's often talked about in the terms of absence of things. But tell me what McKinsey have. Yeah, no, spot on, spot on. So they want to rethink. So they, they claim that there's been a trend towards just treating as an absence of ill health, um, but want to return to um, the definition that the World Health Organization used when it was set up in 1948. And that is a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being being and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity mm, okay which is which is a quite an aim isn't it mm. just to turn it around the other way i mean i remember being very struck by a disabled person talking about um the the discourse that's often heard when people say oh if you don't have your health you have nothing mm-hmm. uh, and she was saying well to, you know are you telling me i've got nothing all my life because i don't have my health yeah. uh, and really very cross about this and it made me rethink a little bit because we hear that often and i have a lot of patients in very poor health mm. in many ways but whose lives are very good yeah. prudence yeah, look, I think that's really important, isn't it? It's like what you get out of life as well. Again, we perhaps have some expectations because, you know, medicine and science are so wonderful that they should be able to fix everything. Sure, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I, I, I guess that, yeah, I think it's um, irrefutable that if somebody's happy, that's, that's enough. But um, if we just look at the uh, rates of depression and anxiety and stress, and we know that that's not prevalent... <laughs> Um, amazing group, this McKinsey mob. I googled them. Oh my goodness! I mean, they they research absolutely everything. They, they do. They have a crack at everything. They're, 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 they, 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 yeah, yeah. They, they have their merits. They have their. Yeah. Well, thank they're, you. They're consultants. They? Yeah, yes, that's, that's right. right. They get paid by government. Absolutely. <laughs> they do. Well, thank you, panel beater, for reminding us that health is a lot more than just taking the right pill from the doctor. And social determinants are rife still, even in this day. Uh, we'll be coming up with more right after this. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Our next guest is Professor Peter Kislev. Peter is a cardiologist. He's an electrophysiologist, which is quite a mouthful for a Sunday morning. He's got one of those CVs that's absolutely terrifying. Could spend the entire segment just reading it out. Uh, but the most important thing is he's here with us now. Good morning, Peter. 
Morning, Dr. Nick. How lovely to have you on the show. Thank you very much for your time this Sunday morning. Um, this segment was triggered by uh, the recent unfortunate sudden deaths of two 52-year-olds. So can I kick off by asking you first, first off, just how common is heart disease? So I suppose if we use the term cardiovascular disease, which incorporates um, heart disease and stroke, it affects more than 4 million Australians and causes about one in four deaths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I read a figure somewhere that four or five people die every hour from cardiovascular causes in Australia. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, about one person every 12 minutes in Australia or in the US, one person every 36 seconds. Whoa, Whoa that's going to keep the health services busy. <laughs> have, you, have you noticed, I mean, I've certainly noticed in the few weeks since the untimely deaths of these two younger people, uh, an uptick in people coming in saying, help, what do I do about my heart? Is that something you've seen yourself as a specialist in the area? Yeah, no, a- a- absolutely. Um, yeah, a lot, a lot of people worried about. I, I, I suppose being a cardiologist, firstly, um, people people do ask about their risk of dying suddenly. But absolutely, there's been a, a boom in interest, if you like, since uh, yeah, so some of the people in their early fifties uh, died suddenly. So I certainly want to ask you about that sudden death thing, but let's go through first up before we get to a kind of sudden unexpected death. Let's go through with the standard risk factors because people listening to this will probably know at least some of them, but can you tell us what are the major risk factors for developing cardiovascular disease? Um, well, I, I suppose firstly getting older, um, uh, being male, um, so, so things we can't necessarily control. But then if we drill down a little bit more on specifics, certainly smoking is, is the number one. Mm-hmm. And, and that was certainly borne out in, uh, in Shane Warne's um, sudden death, uh, high blood pressure. Uh, cholesterol, as controversial as it has been over the decades, it really has stood the test of time as an important risk factor uh, to manage in, in heart disease. Um, family history is relevant, so a first-degree relative um, who develops heart disease under the age of 50 and, uh, of course, diabetes. And then um, one, particularly in Australia, should always be mindful that our First Nations people are at higher risk of cardiovascular disease. And you mentioned the family history, and this is something which sometimes I think confuses people because at least some of that effect is transmitted by the tendency for people in families to have high blood pressure and diabetes and smoking. So these other um, sort of lifestyle or um, other measurable risk factors carry through. Is, Is there a risk in families that's genetically determined independently of some of those other measurable factors? Um, yes, there, there is, but I, I think you're absolutely right when it comes to measurable risk factors. And, and one of the common ones that runs through families is um, is cholesterol, um, because it is difficult to to really assess family history because of uh, smoking rates, pleasingly, have, have really um, dropped substantially in the last uh, generation. But I suppose against that, we're we're getting fatter. Um, so, you know, about two-thirds of Australians are overweight. Um, so, yeah, family history can be difficult to interpret, but certainly the lipid side does seem to be genetically, in part genetically determined. So if you have someone who says, um, you know, my dad was a non-smoker, didn't have diabetes, blood pressure and cholesterol were all fine, and he, he had his first heart attack when he was 52, is that person themselves at much higher risk? Um, yes, I would say they are. I, 
I think that's a relatively um, unusual scenario. I suppose that cholesterol does usually jump out as as the um, as the risk factor that that runs through, and perhaps you know, twenty or thirty years ago it wasn't as aggressively uh, managed as it is nowadays. Mm, okay, and, and I do want to touch on because people sometimes ask me this one, which is, um, you know, um, patients say to me, I've heard of kids even um, suddenly having things happen on the sporting field. Um, is there any way I can check myself as a young adult or my child to make sure they're not that person who's at risk? You know, why do we hear these stories every now and then of otherwise apparently healthy people suffering a major cardiac event in a sports setting? Yeah, so, so the estimated risk of sudden, sudden death in, in younger people is around about one in 100,000. So, um, and it, it's actually a lower risk in regular um, sports people than it is in, in people who don't participate in, in regular sport in terms of that sudden death risk. But it just grabs our attention. You know, it, it's in the media. If it happens naturally, people people talk about it. Coming back to the question of screening, it's, it's a very controversial area. So, for example, in Italy, um, if you're going to be involved in competitive sport, you have an ECG, um, and depending on what that ECG shows, you might have a stress test. In the US, they don't um, screen everybody who's involved in competitive sport. There does seem to be a higher risk in African-American um, basketballers of, um, of sudden death, and that relates to a slightly higher increased risk of a condition called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is this thickening of the heart muscle. Mm. Um, so at the moment, as we, as we sit here in Australia, we don't look at screening um, in young people for sport. Now, if a, if a parent came to me and said, I've heard Peter Kistler on the radio, I want my 19-year-old to have an ECG before he goes off and plays footy, I'd say, well, what on earth use is going to be doing an ECG? Why, why would doing an ECG actually tell you anything useful in a young person? No, I, I, well, yeah, firstly, uh, Dr Nick, you're absolutely right. It, it, it is generally not useful, but... Um, so th there are some abnormal um, uh, abnormalities of the iron channel. So we can look at things like what's called the QT interval. Mm -hmm. We can um, uh, look for for other rare um, conditions of uh, the iron channels, which are, are what um, controls the movement of the impulse through the heart muscle. So that can give us some information in young people, but they're very, very unusual conditions. Okay. So prudence there. Ah, oh, yeah. Hi, Professor. It's lovely talking to you. Thank you for joining us today. Um, I suppose, you know, we, we, yeah, we, we can see the sort of lists of risk factors and so on. So, but, you know, what, what can somebody do perhaps if, uh, you know, they've tried to avoid those risks? Are there things that we can positively do to improve our cardiovascular health, especially as we get older? Maybe we didn't, maybe we lived life a bit hard earlier on. Can I reverse this? Can I reverse the damage I might have done? <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, I, I suppose we've touched on the importance of, of stopping smoking. That's definitely um, right out there. Just moving. Um, so the National Heart Foundation recommends that people exercise at least half an hour um, most days of the week, and, and that can be just walking. Um, so just 
parking that little bit further away from work and, and catching public transport and just moving. Um, nine in ten people don't eat enough vegetables, so you're supposed to have five-plus serves of vegetables per day, um, and that's estimated to reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease by nearly 17%. And then um, weight loss is, is the other one. So, there, yeah, there's lots of positive um, stuff we can do. And the, and the one everybody's hanging out to hear is alcohol. Um, the, yeah. the old French paradox, uh, if I guzzle my way through three quarters of a bottle of red wine every day, am I going to suddenly <laughs> magically prevent myself getting a heart attack? Yeah, so this is, this is also controversial. Um, so it, it was thought that um, up to two standard drinks in males and one standard drink in females... Um, most days of the week was associated with a reduction in heart disease. Um, the World Heart Federation, who are the only body, only cardiovascular body um, directly aligned with the uh, World Health Organization, have now come out and said that that's not not correct. I've oh. looked at the literature. Yeah, I know. I've looked at the literature um, myself, and there does seem to be a lot of sort of population-based data which shows that people who do have one to two standard drinks um, have a lower incidence of, of heart attacks and, and heart disease. So I think it's still controversial and I, I suppose I would say that is still uh, considered a, a healthier um, uh, a part of a healthy lifestyle. The only exception which I must say as an electrophysiologist is that when it comes to atrial fibrillation or that irregular heartbeat, unfortunately, that doesn't hold firm. And uh, uh, further pouring water onto the otherwise ethanolic waters. I mean, the other thing that I understand is that one of the reasons perhaps the very moderate drinkers have a lower risk is because moderate drinking is also associated with many people with a slightly healthier lifestyle. They drink moderately because they exercise and eat sensibly, and it may not even be the alcohol that's helping them. But, oh, my goodness, we'll move away from alcohol because uh, <laughs> we could spend the entire time talking about that. One of the ones I did want to ask you about is the evidence for mood disorder and heart disease because I understand uh, there have been at least some studies showing that significant depressive disorder, for example, can be as big a risk factor as some of the others, like cholesterol. Yeah, no, yeah, there's certainly um, evidence to show that, that um, heart disease is, is increased in, in people with, with depression um, and, and anxiety, for that, for that matter, or mental health disorders generally. Um, sometimes, again, it's, it's difficult to um, work out whether it's directly related uh, to the mental health condition or, or the some of the associations with that. So again, um, often people with mental health conditions are more likely to smoke, less likely to be active. Um, so yeah, absolutely that relationship is there. And one of the things I always point out to people with any form of psychological disorder is all the things that are good for your heart are good for your mental health. So it does all go together, not surprising, I guess. Um, yeah. but, so, so for people listening, thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm, I'm getting a bit alarmed about this. Um, I heard about Shane Warne and Kimberly Kitching. When should I go to my doctor and get checked and what should I have done? What's the answer to those questions? So um, the, the Australian government has recently launched uh, an initiative with the National Heart Foundation about the healthy heart check uh, mm -hmm. with, with their GP. So um, people over 45 can attend their GP in, in the complete absence of symptoms or any family history if they're listening to this and they're worried. Um, they can go along to their GP and essentially it involves a history, examination, measurement of blood pressure, um, 
uh, and and a assessment for diabetes and, and cholesterol and, and review of all those and appropriate um, management. I suppose the flip side of that, and this is really important, is that you, if you're developing symptoms, don't ignore them. And I suppose the classic when we come to heart disease is exertional symptoms. So that little dull chest ache might not be a pain when you're exerting and it stops when you stop. That's a really worrying one for us. Or an unexplained breathlessness um, with exertion, they're all worrying symptoms. Yes, and that, that's a very good reminder. And it, it brings us on to a question that a lot of, particularly maybe the more middle-aged executive types ask me, is that, should I just go and have a stress test done? Yeah, so there's, and it is done as part of the executive um, health check. And, and, and some of my friends are really puzzled. They say, you know, you're a cardiologist in your early 50s. Why, why haven't you ever done a stress test? And maybe there's the answer right there, uh, Dr. Nick. But um yeah, look, there's no clear role for stress testing in the absence of symptoms. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> in a nutshell. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. And, and then the other one that's um, a big question in recent years is this thing called coronary um, CT calcium scoring. So do you want to just outline what that is and who should have that done? Yeah. Um, so... A, a calcium score is, is done uh, via a CT, so that's the sort of donut-type scan. And what it does is it's looking for any calcification um, or calcium deposits around the, the coronary arteries, and it gives you a score. And, and zero is, is obviously the ideal score, and, and lots of population studies have shown that if your score is zero, then you're at very low risk of, of heart disease for at least five years, if not 10 years. And then if your score's... Um, greater than uh, 99, then you are at a significant risk, and that means that we should look to manage your risk factors. Um, so not everyone, though, should go out and have a, a coronary um, calcium score. Um, the first step is really that heart, uh, healthy heart check that we talked about. And um, I've left the best till last because I know this is your current exciting topic and everyone's been hanging out to hear this one. Uh, you've just published a major study about caffeine and the heart. What's the news? Yeah, so this is where, this is where we get some good news. So um, coffee in a nutshell should be considered part of a healthy diet. So there's a lot more evidence to support regular coffee consumption than going and buying those vitamins and things. So we, we just completed a big study um, in over 400,000 uh, people. 400,000? Yeah, <laughs> the biggest study to date. Um, and we looked at uh, a bunch of people, that bunch of people over at least 10 years and we found that regular coffee drinkers, particularly two to three cups per day, lived longer, had less heart disease, less stroke, less diabetes, better mood, um, and uh, uh, compared to non-coffee uh, drinkers. That weird, sound you heard the benefit that weird sound you heard in the background was Panel Beefy leaping off his chair, dancing <laughs> around the room, celebrating. <laughs> you, have just, you have just brought smiles to the faces of thousands of Victorians. Well done. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you in full flight. <laughs> no, no, no. That was just the, yeah, that, that was the uh, zoom of the uh, Grand Prix cars as they... Um, Caffeine powered. Um, <laughs> no, so yeah, no. It, it, I was just going to make the point about decaf versus full strength because we also mm. looked at that. 
and 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 both really generally speaking equal in terms of their health benefits. A lot of people think about coffee as caffeine, but coffee has nearly a hundred biologically active agents, which are anti-inflammatory, antioxidant. Um, so there's a lot more to coffee than just caffeine. So it's not just about going out and taking a caffeine pill. Get down to your local cafe, get that double exactly. shot latte inside you and do it again after lunch. Oh, Peter, that is the best news we've had all morning. You've lifted everyone's move, mood. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on Triple R. Absolutely wonderful to have you as a guest. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. That was Professor Peter Kistler, a cardiologist, electrophysiologist, an all-round great bloke because he tells us that two or three cups of coffee a day is not just okay, it's actually good for you, which is just magnificent news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber... Hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We've now got a fantastic guest in our studio, so yeah. without further ado, Prudence dear, would you like to introduce the gorgeous I'd, Anna who's sitting next to you? I'd love to, yes. Our guest in studio guest today is Anna Bernasocchi, and Anna is from Switchboard Victoria. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the programs they're running, and one in particular. Um, welcome, Anna. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning. It's wonderful to be here. Oh, that's great. I'm so glad you could give us the time. Thank you very much. Um, okay, so I guess just to start with, not everybody perhaps knows what Switchboard Victoria is. So can we just, could you just give us a quick, you know, brief rundown? Who, are, who is Switchboard? What do they do? Absolutely. So Switchboard Victoria is a LGBTIQA plus peer-led and community control organisation. We were founded in 1991, so we've been around for 30 years, and in 1991 we started as a telephone service. So we were the Victorian helpline for LGBTIQA plus people. And it was really important when we were founded because at this point in time, decriminalisation of homosexuality was happening across states and territories, and there was a huge amount of queer phobia toward LGBTIQA plus people. Since then, we have, uh, we have transformed and grown, and now we run various programs, including two helplines, so Rainbow Door, which is a Victoria-wide helpline service, and we are the Victorian partner of the national service, QLife, we also run an anti-racism program for LGBTIQA plus people of colour. We run a program for older LGBTIQA plus people who experience isolation and loneliness. And we run a suicide prevention program, which is what we're here to talk about today. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, it's, it's quite a wide variety of, uh, of services that uh, Switchboard has evolved into providing uh, you know, across the community, which is great. Um, Okay, so suicide. Um, what, is, what is really, I suppose, the challenge? What's the scale of the challenge? Do, what are the statistics around suicide in Victoria and perhaps Australia as a whole? So statistics around suicide are always fraught, but we know that in Australia uh, in 2020 there were 3,139 suicide deaths that were recorded. Um, and when you compare this to other statistics around forms or how people die... Road tolls in Australia were 1,095. So suicide is among the top 15 causes of death in Australia, um, which is a, it's only one part of the picture. This gives us an idea of, I guess, the crisis point and how this goes on to impact people following loss and the amount of people who might be affected um, and the sadness of those deaths. 
but we also know that there is a high proportion of people living in Australia who experience suicidal distress, who, who live through suicide attempts, and people who care for individuals who experience um, suicidality. Right. And for the LGBTIQA plus sort of communities, I mean, I, I guess when it comes to statistics, some of that information isn't collected, so we perhaps don't know what the, what the sort of real numbers are. But what do we know about this, the susceptibility, I guess, of, of LGBTIQA plus people to, towards suicide? That's right. So we don't record deaths by suicide of LGBTIQA plus people in Australia. So um, coroner's offices don't collect this data, which means that how we understand suicidality among LGBTIQA plus communities is really about understanding the experiences of suicidal distress and uh, how it is that LGBTIQA plus people make suicide attempts and live with suicidality. Um, and, you know, compared to the general population, LGBTIQA plus people are five times more likely to make a suicide attempt. Um, and uh, as well as that, we know from analysing population data that 10 to 15% of the suicide attempts that are made in Australia are by people who are LGBTIQA plus. Mm. But also in saying this, the statistics are probably under-representations of what's actually happening because this relies on people identifying as LGBTIQA+. Yeah, that's right. And also that people who are going to come out later in life as LGBTIQA+, may have had these experiences around suicidality before they've come to uh, understand their gender and sexuality in a way yeah. that they're confident to identify but we do know, obviously, yeah, that the, that the figures for the communities are actually disproportionate to the sort of uh, overall broad population. So um, suicide, let's move to talk about suicide bereavement then. So, yeah, you know, people will lose somebody close to them, maybe a partner or a parent or a child or a sibling. Um, what's, what's perhaps different then about being bereaved through suicide as opposed to losing somebody for um, uh, uh, another form of health condition? It's a really good question and it's an intricate answer. So loss through suicide is a form of grief that's particularly painful and also enduring. So grief through suicide often comes quickly, it's sudden, it can be particularly traumatic. So um, we're talking about people who might find the body of a loved one. People have to go through coronial processes. Um, there are so many unanswered questions around mm. a suicide loss. So why did this person decide to take their own life? There's guilt. There's regret. What happens for someone who's bereaved through suicide is, uh, is a, you know, I think it's a heartbreaking and, you know, pinnacle of pain that someone can Absolutely. go through. Yeah, and I mean, it can be, that's right, it can be very isolating because, you know, it's, it's stigmatised in many cases or what, you know, you, you, you lose somebody to suicide <clears throat> but your friends or other relatives go say things like, oh, that's very selfish or, you know, um, or you didn't do enough. You maybe feel that you didn't do enough. Why didn't I see the signs? Why didn't I intervene earlier? I think that's right. And a lot of that is a religious as well as like legal legacy mm -hmm. of when suicide was criminalised um, and also that a seen as a sin. And in some countries mm -hmm. it still is. So this legacy of shame and stigma makes even talking about suicide loss very difficult as well. People don't necessarily want to or people feel like they might be burdening those around them if they're talking about 
um, you know, uh, I guess details of how someone's died or what they're going through. Um, so often people, I guess, withdraw socially um, and don't have many avenues to talk about loss. And we know through mm. grief how we find healing and how we feel move through it is actually by uh, talking about the person when they how they were when they were alive, their joys, their humour, that we find ways to memorialise yeah. them. So through loss, through suicide, that's particularly difficult. Right. And uh, compounded if the person is LGBTIQA+, and perhaps what the family don't acknowledge, um, the identity of the person who's died or the relationships they may have had. So those who are bereaved in those circumstances may feel, again, quite what the word is, what disenfranchised, I think. Um, they, they, they feel cut out of any memorialisation. It's really common um, among, I guess, what happens following a suicidal loss is that the, the family around an individual... Uh, I guess, lead the memorial processes. And often that means that the queer identity of someone who's suicided might be minima minimised mm -hmm. or um, might be completely absent, which means that perhaps partners and friends um, might be excluded. Um, we also know that family and friends might blame the LGBTIQA plus identity as to why this person has suicided. So it's it can be a really volatile and yeah. very traumatic and painful process for LGBTIQA plus people after a suicide. I think the other part to that, though, is that there might be, um, I guess, an accepting context around the suicide, but it's also really difficult for people who are LGBTIQA plus to access safe services. Right. So there exist services that are particularly around suicide bereavement, but that doesn't necessarily mean that a LGBTIQA plus person can phone up and get an appointment and feel like they're welcome in that space. Right, which leads us on then to, so what can we do? What is Switchboard able to do now for those who are bereaved by suicide? One of our focuses of our suicide prevention program is running a bereavement um, through suicide service. So we run a eight-week program for LGBTIQA plus people who have, um, who a loved one, a close friend, a partner, a family member who has died by suicide, and it's in a peer space which means that this group is for LGBTIQA plus people and they're surrounded by other people who share that kinship mm. to our rainbow communities. And this takes away some of the barriers to accessing services because you, you, we know that that space is going to be welcoming. They don't have to worry about mentioning the same sex of their partner. They don't have to worry about their pronouns not being used correctly. Um, and there's the possibility of connecting over those shared experiences of what happened following a suicide, that if someone has had those disenfranchised experiences of what it was like, yeah. that they're talking with people who may have had those experiences and being able to share and connect, as well as also the intricacies of being LGBTIQA plus and having relationships with anyone in the world, that I think that this can be a huge part of someone's story and part of their grief as well. So what's the, what's the sort of model then So for suicide bereavement support? How, how is this being implemented, I suppose, and where's the idea come from? So we established this eight-week early bereavement program in 2021. We ran our first, um, our first group 
And the idea about this group came from a podcast that was co-produced between Switchboard and an organisation called Support After Suicide, which is run through the Jesuit Social Services. Um, and in this podcast, it centres the voices of four LGBTIQA plus people who have been bereaved through suicide and sort of unpacks those intricacies that we're talking about. And it became abundantly clear that the services that currently existed when that podcast was made didn't meet the needs or that there was more potential to offer better support for LGBTIQA plus people. So we, we created this eight-week group. So the eight-week group, um, well, we have one running in April. The next group runs in April this year. Um, it is run for people current... It's open to people currently living in Victoria or New South Wales. The group is running online. Um, it's particularly aimed at people who experience the loss through suicide between three and 24 months ago. So it's mm -hmm. considered so an early bereavement yeah, relatively group. Relatively recently, yeah. 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 And it's a closed group, which means it runs once a week for eight, over eight weeks and the same people attend each session. And each week they explore a different theme about grief and bereavement. Okay. And, and so when you say it's online, so it's, on, it's using Zoom yeah. or something? Yeah. So it's kind of video conferencing. So people can join from, from the, the comfort, hopefully, of their own home. Uh, they're not having to travel into the city. And obviously, as you said, I mean, uh, you know, people can participate from not only from Victoria but also yeah. from New South Wales. So, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, it's, we know that there's so much benefit of running these things face-to-face, -face, but there's also a really wonderful benefit of being able to reach into regional and, mm. and rural communities where people who don't necessarily have LGBTIQA plus services and, and um, yeah. programs can access this. Right. And, and the previous group had to run on Zoom anyway because of the COVID restrictions. We couldn't actually put That's eight right. people and facilitators in the same room. And, and Dr Nick here, and it's wonderful, wonderful to hear what your service is providing. You, you use the phrase that suicide bereavement is a pinnacle of pain, which mm. I think really sums it up um, beautifully for me. Um, you mentioned that there is a podcast which started this. I imagine some people would be interested to hear that podcast. Can you just tell us where they can find that, what it's called? It's called Let's Talk About Suicide, and it's through Joy FM, which is a LGBTIQA plus community radio. So if you search for Let's Talk About Suicide and Joy FM, you'll be able to find it. You'll also be able to find it through the Switchboard website under resources or suicide prevention. And, and I understand that we are here talking about your work with um, suicide bereavement groups, which is wonderful, but of course we would much prefer if we could to prevent the suicide in the first place, and your organisation is also hugely involved in that area. So do you want to talk a little bit about when people are struggling, where that might be, where their thinking is going, what they can do? Absolutely. So if you or someone you know is in distress, you can contact our Rainbow Door Service, which is the Victorian helpline for LGBTIQA plus people. We're open between 10am and 5pm seven days a week, which means we're open today. And you can contact us on 1800 729 367. Or you can visit our Rainbow Door website, which has um, a mobile number that you can text to. And you can also contact us by email. And there's a, another number we've got here for QLife. Yes, so QLife is the national LGBTIQA plus helpline and it runs seven days a week from 3pm until midnight and you can contact QLife on 1800 184 527. 
And, and I would add as a GP, don't forget that um, there's plenty of other help out there. It doesn't have to be on the telephone. Um, these days, I would hope that most primary care health professionals are very queer aware and very, very happy to see people from any branch of the community. Look out for the little rainbow flag in the waiting room. That, that sometimes tells you that that particular service is a little bit more alive. <laughs> Prudence, you yeah, Absolutely. Um, OK, and so there is another group coming up in 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 April, I think it starts on the twenty sixth, and there'll probably there'll be another group after that later this year. So the sort of criteria are what over twenty one years of age, um, a member of one of the sort of queer communities, um, and any other intersections. Um, yeah, resident in Victoria or New South Wales, and yeah, bereaved between three months and sort of 24 months approximately. There's a bit of, you know, flexibility in those uh, criteria. So what do, Anna, what do people do then if they want to join a group or they, they're interested and want to know a bit more about it? The best way is to go to our website, which is www.switchboard.org.au and go to our suicide prevention tab where there is an online form you can fill in by giving us your name and email address and a little bit of information if you wish. Or you can contact uh, the phone number that's on the website or contact us by email. Anna, it has been so good to have you in the studio. It's absolutely wonderful the work you're doing. I wholeheartedly congratulate you and thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. It's nearly time to wrap up here. I do just want to give you those numbers again because that's an incredibly important segment we just had from Anna. Um, Rainbow Door, if you want to get in touch with them, are 1800 729. 367 and they're online um, on phones rather 10 to 5 p.m. seven days a week. There's also Q Life, which you can contact between 3 p.m. and midnight seven days a week, and that number is 1800 184 527. And of course, there's always, if you need it, Lifeline 131114. Oh, what a, what a show it's been today. Thank you very much, Prudence, for bringing that fun, wonderful it? guest. It's been wonderful to yeah, have you in the studio. Panel Beater, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Dr Nick. So our guests were Peter Kistler, cardiologist, electrophysiologist, and the absolutely magnificent Anna Bernasocki. I've been Dr Nick. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for listening. Uh, remember, you can always check us out on Facebook. You can listen anytime with Triple R Radio On Demand. You can always download the podcast so that you can listen to us on the road, in the air, or in the bath. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.